This episode of the Pain Education Corner is sponsored by the Camella Foundation. The Camella Foundation is committed to relieving pain naturally using osteopathic healing principles. Here at the Camella Foundation, we envision a world where people achieve their maximum potential by being empowered with knowledge and skills to heal themselves and others. This information is to be used for educational purposes only and not to be construed as medical advice. If you have any questions or concerns, please consult a licensed healthcare professional. Bill, the knee pain guru, and welcome to the Pain Education Podcast brought to you by the Camilla Foundation. Today we have a good friend of mine and an excellent therapist, Lloyd Robrecht. Welcome back, Lloyd. Hey, thank you, Bill. Uh, now, many times people get it confused because I have, I have a buddy, <laughs> they could be highly qualified. So share a little bit about your background, please. Uh, okay. Uh, I am a therapist, a mental health, uh, psychotherapist here in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, I will see people for a wide variety of reasons and have a number of issues, but what I am finding more often than not is regardless of why people present there is trauma involved and the issues that they might be seeking help with related to maybe temper or anxiety or depression or job performance or family relationship issues. Uh, if you dig down deep enough, it's related to uh, traumatic events that they've experienced in their lives, which have formed uh, their patterns on which they live their lives. And that brings about a certain level of dysfunction. And that's why they are finding themselves in therapy. But um, I'm also finding that in, relate, in relation to physical pain, uh, the stories that we tell ourselves, the patterns that we run up in our heads uh, really do contribute to our experience of pain, whether it be physical or emotional. Now, Lloyd, you're in private practice. Yes. In Roanoke, you're in private practice, and you, I, I we just had a couple weeks ago uh, a Rose Pignataro from Virginia as well, okay. and she was kind of saying who she was able to work with was limited to those states that she was licensed in. Absolutely, um, yeah, just, I have that same issue. Same, same thing. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's if if people want to utilize their insurance. Yeah. So you could work with somebody outside of the the vicinity on of a contractual kind of okay. basis. Cool. I just I just want to make sure for those watching sure. that they could under understand. Now, one of the the angles that I really thought was interesting that you were bringing to the table was around um, NLP, neuro linguistic programming, in terms of helping with the pain, with the trauma, with everything that you were talking about. Uh, the mindset that goes along with that. Could you share a little bit about what is NLP um, and, and kind of delve into that a little bit? Sure. Um, it, that's a very broad question. What is NLP? Okay. Because it really 
does go into so many different areas. But if you want to just kind of dissect the term neuro is your brain, your, mm -hmm. your neurology, um, linguistic, the language. So what language does your brain or your neurology use? And how do you program yourself or have you been programmed by your experiences? And it's basically your thoughts. Mm -hmm. What are the structures of your thoughts? You can think about something in your past and call it a memory. You can think about something in your future, um, but we do it in the same way. We create mental pictures, which is visual. You know, we remember what something looked like or we can imagine what something will look like. Mm -hmm. um, there's the auditory concept of our thoughts or our memories. You know, we can remember what somebody said or we can think about what we're going to say and we can hear it in our own heads. And then there's the kinesthetic. We can remember what a situation felt like or we can imagine what it's going to feel like in the future. But we determine the quality of our experience or our thoughts through these modalities, this visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Mm -hmm. And in the 1970s, a guy, Richard Bandler and John Grinder uh, worked together and they noted the people who were at the top of their fields. They studied or they modeled uh, several people in the world, world of psychotherapy, but also business um, achievement. But they looked at the qualities uh, or the quality of their thoughts through these three uh, modalities, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, and looked at how can a person create change. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, it's the study of the structure of our thoughts, how do we think, and how can we create change by manipulating or utilizing these um, modalities for sensory input and their submodalities or the quality of the visual, auditory, or kinesthetic. Mm -hmm. I use that quite a bit in my therapeutic work. Okay, uh, so, oh boy, you're right. It yeah. is a very, very broad topic. There's, yeah, there's so many different directions to dive, dive into. One of the things that comes to mind that you're talking about trauma that people experience and how it, uh, uh, changes how we think about situations from the past in the future it, it keeps us from being present have you seen anything over the past let's say several years uh, in terms of the level of trauma that of the people that you're the, the clients that you're working with the level of trauma I cannot I cannot say. I, I would say, though, that two things have happened uh, that I'm seeing. One, people are more encouraged to talk about trauma mm -hmm. and to uh, admit to trauma, mm -hmm. um, which I think for the most part is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. the people are more readily able to seek out the help that they need. Mm -hmm. um, but along with that, there's, there's a tendency for society as a whole to kind of jump on that bandwagon and really want to focus on and emphasize, oh, that, that's traumatic. That's, you were traumatized by that. 
So people are identifying difficulties, hardships, uh, situations in which I'm kind of trying to reframe people to see as, oh, that's a learning opportunity. That's a, that's a struggle through which you could develop strength, but they're being encouraged or they're identifying themselves as being traumatized. So, mm. you know, what is it? What is trauma? Mm-hmm. What is traumatic? Mm-hmm. What is, um, and again, this is the quality of our uh, thoughts and how we frame an experience. So one person mm-hmm. can experience something and see it as an adversity to grow from, and another person can tell themselves through their mental programming mm-hmm. that uh, this is a horrible trauma uh, and that they're the victim and that there's no recovery from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's perfect. I, I see that a lot that they, people almost relish in their victimization of a situation and they get stuck there. And I think what you're talking about and what neuro-linguistic programming can move someone stuck in that place of thinking something is painful, whether it be mentally, emotionally, physically into a place of empowerment, like the pivot that they right. would begin to think about it differently. And, you know, you use that word relish, and I would use that, uh, I don't know if I would use that word, um, because I I think if you ask the vast majority of people, you know, um, they'll be, they would say, no, I hate this, I don't like this, this is a horrible situation, and I agree with them, and I empathize with them, I don't think that they're consciously doing it, it's that they don't see the other option, Mm, they don't see that there may be an element of choice. And, you know, I can hear it now. Somebody saying, no, 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 there's no choice. This happened to me. And Mm -hmm. I would agree. Yeah, things happen to you. But where you move from beyond that experience is an issue of choice. But Mm -hmm. sometimes we just don't see it. And that's Mm -hmm. where I come in. You know, it's like we have to be shown that um, we can respond to things rather than react to things. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, you know, preach a lot is the difference between uh, reacting versus responding. Yeah, w- would you speak about that a little bit, uh, reacting as opposed sure, to responding? Sure. I think you know, I get it, but I wanna make sure those that are right, watching, right, right. it lands um, for them. We, we as human beings tend to be very reactive creatures, you know, and. And we're like, again, in the area of neuro-linguistic programming, we are programmed, we are anchored, and we are triggered by people, circumstances, and our environments. And very often something happens and we have a, uh, an emotional reaction to it, mm-hmm. and then we physically react to it, and we speak in reaction to it, and if this is a negative thing and we react in a very negative way, but it's what we, you know, feel justified, maybe that's where you get, maybe that's a word we could replace relish with. Okay. Um, justified. Um, we find that people say, do things in reaction that 
later they look back on and go, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Now I've got all these negative unintended consequences for what, how I reacted. Responding is more of a mindful practice, a mindfulness um, technique that we can talk about a little bit more, but it allows that moment of pause. And once I've worked with a person to kind of identify their ideal self mm-hmm. and their ideal characteristics, they can take that moment of pause and choose to respond in those situations rather than to immediately have that knee jerk reaction. They can um, take that moment of pause and think, okay, how do I want to respond to this? What's going to create the best? good for myself and the other people Mm. involved in this situation what's going to bring me happiness Mm -hmm. and you know when people respond to something they look back on it later and they feel a sense of pride that Mm -hmm. they did a good job that they made the most of the situation it's not typically one of regret you know which Mm -hmm. follows after that knee-jerk reaction which is usually fear-based and um yeah protective protective so is the process of the neurolinguistic programming the dialogue you're having with your client uh offering other options or uh proposing different ways of looking at a situation or scenario that they were stuck in sure is that that the process well I, I i would say that's the the therapeutic process hopefully of, of uh, ideally, ideally get... of, of talk therapy, you know, getting a person to um, reconsider and perhaps change through discussion, their inner dialogue, mm-hmm. but where neuro-linguistic programming differs is that a therapist might actually say, okay, now from observing you, when you were telling me about this situation, Mm-hmm. Based on some eye movements that I noted, I'm wondering, do you, yeah, we can talk about eye accent okay. cues and cool. all that stuff too. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, from what I noted through your eye movements, I'm wondering, did you just have a mental image up in your head about that situation? Were mm-hmm. you running a movie or was it a still frame picture? Uh, was it colored? Was it black and white? You know, all these different characteristics of the visual quality, the submodalities of of uh, the experience. And, you know, the client might say, yes. Okay, well, tell me a little bit more about that. How did that make you feel? What Mm -hmm. kind of other thoughts does that cause you to have about that situation? Well, it was painful. It was hurtful. I felt ashamed. And based on that visual experience, and then we would also ask, are there any auditory components? Did you hear people saying something? Um, do you, are you recalling what was spoken? Um, you know, we already talked about how did it feel, mm-hmm. but then we can go back and change that memory, that experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily what happened. You know, we're not going to have caused somebody to believe something uh, didn't happen, mm-hmm. but how do they value that experience? You know, was mm-hmm. this a traumatic thing? Or was this a difficult thing that can provide growth for them? 
can we change the, the qualities of that ex memory experience so that it's less impactful in a negative way and more impactful in perhaps a positive growth promoting way? For, for example, yeah, yeah. If, if I have a big, large in color image of something that happened to me, somebody's in my face yelling and screaming at me and berating me and making me feel, you know, uh, minuscule and small. Mm -hmm. And that experience has impacted my self-worth, you know, for my entire life. Um, well, two points. Traumatic experiences like that are so ingrained in our neurology that it's very easy for us to replay them repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And people replay traumatic memories over and over and over again, wearing a very nice groove in their neural pathways to promote this recall very mm -hmm. efficiently. And we replay them the exact same way over and over and over again. So what neural linguistic programming would do would have a person recall that memory, but then let's change it, change it in some way. So the neural pathway is disrupted. It's like that pattern of tension that a person holds in their body or in their mind or their neurology associated with that memory has to change because I'm taking the picture of it's big and in my face and I'm pushing it back. Mm -hmm. I'm putting myself at a more objective distance. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna to tone down the colors of that mm -hmm. image so that they're not so bright mm -hmm. and intense. Um, if there's an auditory component, I might change it in some way to make it less uh, abrasive, mm -hmm. maybe even comical. Now, mm -hmm. how often do people remember their traumas and think about them in a comical way. It hardly if ever happens. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> um, but it rarely happens. But once a person has figured out that they can do that, their experience of that situation is going to be vastly different. Mm -hmm. I. I like it. And I could see how this ties in with our martial arts training, you know, the background that we have training in the martial arts on how that was, we re reframe being punched or kicked or whatever that is in a different way. Hmm. I didn't uh, know you did martial arts, but that's, that's cool. In, in theory, in theory. <laughs> in theory. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and there's also this, uh, this piece that's really fascinating to me is observing the client, you call them clients or patients, just so I'm. I call them clients. Clients. Okay. We're not that, in a hospital setting. So yeah. Okay. When you notice the eye movement of the person change at the moment you ask the question, or we're talking about a specific topic, is there, it seems to me that the neuro-linguistic programming is about you being acutely aware of the body language and how that changes in the person when at the moment of the question or whatever the, the situation is. Sure. Absolutely. Are, there, are there other, I mean, eye movements, that's a real. Sure. So 
what you're asking about are called eye accessing cues. How does a person access memories or thoughts in their brain? And is it, are they uh, visual memories? Typically when people uh, form a picture or a movie in their mind, they tend to look up to the left or to the right, whether they're remembering specifically or they're adding details or creating an image, it'll mm -hmm. change whether it's left or right. Um, so, you know, I can tell if a person is making a picture or mental image in their head. If they are remembering how something sounds or thinking about how something sounds or will sound, uh, they tend to move their eyes to the side, you know, either direction, left or right. And um, when a person is deep down in their emotions or remembering physical sensations, um, their eyes typically go down and to the left or to the right. Um, down into the left, their left, not your left, their left. I always map a person by their left or right, not mine. Um, it's just a trick. Um, sure. Helps me remember. Um, sometimes that can have an auditory component. Uh, it's referred to as auditory digital, but it's still an emotional, I'm sorry, a feeling uh, physical or emotional type situation. But yeah, that, that's the eye accessing map in short. Um, that information can be found online very easily, eye accessing cues, NLP, uh, but it, it, it's interesting. But yeah, you talked about being attuned with or calibrated is a word that we use a lot, calibrated to a person's uh, client's responses, not just through their eye movements, but shifts in their posture, mm -hmm. uh, changes in their breathing, mm -hmm. um, even flushing of their skin tone based when they start talking about a certain subject and, you know, being uh, calibrated or aware, sensitive essentially to those kinds of changes can really help in mm -hmm. um, pulling information from people, getting, prompting them to communicate more deeply. Mm -hmm. um, or just benefiting from noticing the shift mm -hmm. in something. Yeah, I mean that's the 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 observation of it. That there's so many things that I wasn't even thinking about, like the skin flushing, the the different eye accessing cues is pretty fascinating. Yeah, in terms of getting an idea where a person's mind is going to. Yeah, I, I'd I'd like to comment on that real quick because. Whenever I talk with people that aren't quite very familiar with it, they go, oh, so you can tell when somebody's lying. And I, I have to say, yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, a person moved their eyes up and to the left, which means they're creating an image, so they're making it up. No, that's, that's not accurate. Um, because we're, we are adders and deleters. We don't, our memories are not 100% perfect. So if you asked me to envision the bicycle that I had when I was 10 years old, mm -hmm. I'm going to add some details in that. You know, I can't remember it specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, using eye accessing cues uh, for lie detection is, is a part of it. Mm -hmm. Basically, when you want to tell if a person is lying, it, does their posture change? Does their tone change? Does something 
you know, are they behaving in one certain way through the conversation? And then you notice a lot of different shifts when they mm -hmm. provide an answer to a question, that's more indicative of a falsehood or something mm -hmm. that they're uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. And from there, you need to ask even more questions. So, you know, the, the lie detection is really not that simple. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. What I hear you saying is using these cues as a way to indicate where the the glitches in the neurology that's leading a person into this place where it's like, oh, this pain is bad. I'm stuck. I have no options. The, that's right. how it's going to be forever and ever. Amen. You know, that kind of, that kind of deal. Um, it, but I find that understanding this uh, fundamental approach to our neurology is a way to begin to change it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one thing I, I say is that patterns persist. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean, what people have done, they will continue to do. Um, the way they have been, they will continue to be um, until they find that that pattern, one, no longer serves them, is perhaps detrimental to them, and they find a better way. And that's where therapeutic interventions you know, come in is like, what is the better way? Um, and they have to believe that or make that choice for themselves. You know, you can't tell somebody you need to do this. You need to do this. You've got to do this. This is important for you to do that. You can't do that anymore. It, you know, unless that's coming from a very highly respected and influential source, and impacts them in such a way that they're, they start telling themselves, having that conversation with themselves that they need to change, they're not going to, you know? Where do you see, cause I, I find it in working with the clients that I work with online, there's a, there's a physical component with that we're usually starting with, knee pain. Right. And then we're beginning to change the neurology. I'm just coming from a completely different angle with that. But I find that there is a huge mental and emotional component that is tied in with where they're, where they're stuck with their, their knee pain. It, yeah. it, and what I just heard you saying is a person needs to come to that decision or that choice themselves mm -hmm. that this doesn't work anymore. I need to do something different. I don't know what that different is. And, and it almost seems like, um, like they're, they're really stuck in that place because they just keep replaying this pattern that's no longer working anymore. What, what would you say to someone in that place that they're like, okay, the end of my world as I know it, uh, Mm. what do I do? Cause I mean, there's a thousand therapies out there, thousands of therapies, physical therapies, um, energetic therapies, uh, talk therapy, like you were saying, NLP, like what is the thing that would a person in that place that would go, well, that's the way I would go. How, how do they know someone's going to help them or not? Well, you know, a conversation that I, 
I have with people in this, this perfect kind of lead into NLP and actual physical pain rather than just emotional stuff, but um, is a person has to understand that their identity, who and what they think they are, is the result of patterns and messages and internal dialogues that they have had uh, their entire lives. And when you're talking about using NLP with physical pain, you're actually talking about starting up a dialogue or even a partnership um, with your unconscious mind. And immediately people go, what? Your unconscious mind, what? You know, and I have to encourage people to get out of the box of their identity because the unconscious mind is not something that we in this culture are encouraged to one, understand, to trust, uh, or to put any kind of faith in. We just don't even know what the unconscious mind is, right? Um, it's, I'll, I'll give an example of what I mean by identity and, and what people feel comfortable. And again, it's always about comfort and um, protecting themselves. Ego defense is a huge thing in life, but also in therapy. Um, so let's say I have a client and he's 70 plus years old and he loves to fish. And, um, but he's got stability issues and he falls down and, you know, might hurt himself or fall in the river and, you know, something bad could happen. So his family is telling him that you can't go fishing by yourself anymore. So part of his identity, hey, I am a fisherman, gets taken away. And let's say that he, his exercise that he likes to do um, is the water aerobics class at such and such gym, but they put too many chemicals in the water and it causes a skin rash and they don't maintain the place very well. So, you know, he can't do that anymore. You know, the, the mm -hmm. thought of going to another gym to do the same thing doesn't even occur to him because he's so identified with this gym, all this kind of stuff. So we're talking about other ways to get exercise. And he says to me, well, you know, somebody told me the other day I should take up Tai Chi and I'm sitting over on my side of the room going, yes, great, wonderful. And then he makes this eye movement and this facial expression. So you know what's coming and he goes, yeah, but that's just not me. Mm -hmm. That's just not me. He's identified mm -hmm. himself within this box mm -hmm. of this is what I do. This is what I am and nothing else. So, you know, I have to encourage him and find examples of things that he has come to love and enjoy that he does identify with that he didn't necessarily identify with in the beginning because everything's new at some point some mm -hmm. you know things untried at some point mm -hmm. but um you know you have to find that hook before a person will um allow themselves to kind of shed their identity and try something different 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, having a conversation with your unconscious self is um, a little off-putting to a lot of people in the beginning. And um, I've never and, done that before. And is that uh, the unconscious self that you're referring to? Is that the, the I'm trying to, I, in the example you just gave about the person, the fishing and the swimming are in the chlorinated pool yeah. with the chemicals. What, what part of that is the unconscious mind? Is it the fact that uh, about the Tai Chi that's coming to the forefront that the person isn't identifying mm. as doing Tai Chi? Like what part of that is the unconscious mind? Okay. Well, I, I wasn't really thinking of those specific things as part of the unconscious mind, but rather examples of, of how he has identified himself. He's put himself into a box of Swim, swimmer in the chlorinated yeah. pool and fisherman, fisherman, at the river. Okay. Yeah. So and then he, he, that, then he that's in box. something like Tai Chi and outside like, of the box. Yeah. That's outside of my comfort zone. Okay. Um, you know, it hasn't, become part of my unconscious patterns, my routines, things that I just naturally do without thinking about anymore, because that concept hasn't even worked itself into his Mm. unconscious mind as a safe thing to -hmm. make a habit of. So when it butts up against his identity, that box, Mm -hmm. he's like, nope, that's not me. That's not me. I don't do that. You know, that's not it's, it's too, I don't get and understand the slow motion movement and all this other stuff. It's just so far from his realm of mm-hmm. self that he's not willing to try it. Now, what's interesting is I asked him, I said, have you ever gotten involved in anything and come to love anything that mm-hmm. you didn't enjoy at first? And he rolled his eyes and kind of, you know, admitted, admitted, um, <laughs> admitted, you know, that I was hitting on something there. He goes, well, yeah, actually the water aerobics at the, at the gym, you know, when I first started doing that, I thought it was all going to be a bunch of women, and you know, that I was going to be the only guy in there. And I really didn't want to do that either, but I really love that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So he had the experience of it and then his internal dialogue about it changed. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he's reprogramming his unconscious mind that this is something that's acceptable and then actually something enjoyable. And then it becomes part of his identity. And then he doesn't even have to talk himself into going anymore. He just does it. So Mm -hmm. that becomes an unconscious pattern. Right. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the pain education corner. If you have a special talent or skill to relieve pain and you'd like to become a guest on our show, visit us at the Camilla foundation.org forward slash interview. Help us spread the word on eliminating pain and suffering in the world. That's the Camilla foundation.org forward slash interview. That's, that's huge. I think those are the first things that need to line up in order for a person to adapt to something more functional in their life. In this case, the older gentleman that is trying to figure out something where he could still be active and yes. participate in life. Uh, there, there's, gosh, well, you know my backstory with my knee injury and the whole thing was 
judo for me. And I, it was like, eh, I don't really want to do that anymore. What are other options? And then Sistema came along and yep. how there was a healing component to it. In the beginning, it was real hard to let go of that old self, ego, right. all of that kind of stuff and do something different that was something that I wasn't exactly proficient at. Right. So right. I get that. Get that big time. Uh, and when you're, I hear you slowing down the process with your clients that instead of, you know, swimmer, uh, fisherman, and now Tai Chi, that you're starting to make these little connections in their brain to be able to think almost like a crack in the door open so that that yeah. new, you know, and it could be Tai Chi that they'll make connections on. It could be uh, a, a gazillion different options that they could start to engage life differently. And maybe it isn't Tai Chi. Maybe they go there and then they meet a new friend and right. that friend, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different options that could open up as a result of that interaction during the Tai Chi class. Right. Well, it all has to do, you know, I, I say patterns persist. Mm -hmm. Why do we have patterns? What causes a pattern to develop? Well, we've learned to identify with it, make it a part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So our, our, our sense of self is, is our ego. You know, and when mm -hmm. I say ego, I don't mean haughty arrogance. Oh, he's got a big ego. It's just our identity, who and what we are. That's mm -hmm. our that's our ego. But our patterns that we've associated and identify with are part of who and what we are. And mm -hmm. we're always struggling to defend those. Mm -hmm. Politics is a great area. You know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm on the left, I'm on the right, you know, and we're so defensive about that kind of thing that we learn that somebody's from the other side of the spectrum on that political thought it we're already boom, biased we don't want to hear what they have to say we already know what kind of you know drivel they're going to be throwing at us or what kind of point of view they're going to be spewing out of their mouth that really uh buttresses up or clashes against our personal values, you know, so that we don't even listen. Mm -hmm. So we're all really invested in ego defense. Um, so getting, you know, moving out of our comfort zones is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. We pay lip service to, you know, oh, I'll try new stuff. I'll do new things. I'll, I'll give this a shot, you know, but yeah, when it comes down to it, you know, we, we tend to be avoidant. Mm -hmm. um, and defensive in those regards. Yeah. Where do you find the balance in that? Because there are certainly perspectives that I'm open to hearing to. And then at some point, it just gets so far outside of the ability to wrap my head around that. How, how do you know it's like this slippery slope to a place that, um, is really difficult to make sense and actually detracting from my life, a person's life. Well, you have to show a person the, dysfunct the dysfunction of their patterns. 
and say, okay, are you ready to experience something different? Because if you continue to do what you've always done or continue to think what you've always thought or continue to feel the way you always felt, mm -hmm. those patterns will persist. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right in a therapeutic perspective, uh, context where there is a, someone is definitely leading and another person needs to follow. They're going to you to get help. But for the average person that's out there that is experiencing this mental pain of dialoguing with a friend or a family member or something like that, that it's like, how, how do you navigate and negotiate that place? Send them to a therapist. No. Okay. <laughs> Go see somebody. I got my business card right here. <laughs> Good call. Well played, sir. Um, um, well, and, you know, that goes back to my earlier comment that a person has to realize the dysfunction of their patterns themselves mm -hmm. and need and see the need for a change themselves, because we're all invested in ego defense, defending who and what we are and what we do and our own patterns. So, you know, making somebody, getting somebody to do that, uh, very doesn't hard. Work. It doesn't huh? work. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work. You, people have to be shown, introduced, guided, helped, mm -hmm. you know, but even with the sense of the word help, somebody has to ask for help. You can't just offer somebody help, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about going to a martial arts seminar and somebody that clearly doesn't have your level of experience comes up to you and goes, no, 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 it's like this, or let me show you something, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, you know? Um, so there's that. Okay, there is that. They have to be, you know, uh, they have to be invested in some way, shape, or form. And it, in, you know, there's, there's um, having an ability to persuade, mm -hmm. persuasiveness, um, selling, you know, the art of selling an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, that's definitely a part of NLP, but that's also about talking the same language, so to speak, language sure. that, a per, you know, knowing where a person is coming from and building rapport with mm -hmm. them. And, you know, that develops a level of trust. So really a person is, is making that decision to listen uh, or to follow themselves. Mm -hmm. So you can be influential, but you can't make sure right so i and if i correct me if i'm wrong but i i hear both people have to have a uh both have a vested interest in a change in the outcome from the conversation that it isn't uh yeah they're we're both yeah. working together for a different yeah. outcome that might not be the starting point okay but that that needs to happen. Otherwise, the conversation will just be, you know, it'll constantly be this and never yeah. this, right? Where do you see the starting point? It, so there, I hear you saying there's a, a maybe a baby step before that or a couple steps before that. 
to enter into the conversation? Um, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, how does the conversation start? Well, one, does the client come into the office? Okay. Somebody's looking for something if they're showing up. Sure. Yeah. Right. You, know, you know, it could be uh, knee pain relief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, you know, somebody could come into your office and go, yeah, well, I'm here because everybody else is full of crap and mm-hmm. I don't really believe in this, but, you know, somebody said, give it a shot and, you know, um, I'm done with everything else. Mm-hmm. Nothing else has worked. So, you know, it's like, wow, you got your, you got your work cut out for you in that kind of a situation. What mm-hmm. I hear from time to time and I smile every time, is somebody comes in and goes, well, I don't know if I'm really the kind of person that needs therapy or counseling. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, no problem. And I don't try to convince them that they are. I just ask them, okay, well, what part of your life is not working out so perfectly or so well that, you know, you might need some support, guidance, ideas, suggestions on you know Mm -hmm. and uh i'm thinking specifically of a guy who came in his first words were i don't think i'm the kind of person that needs therapy or counseling Mm -hmm. and i said okay well you know what brings you in what's what's not working out so well in your life and he said well the guardian ad litem in the custody you know battle for my children suggested it (laughs) okay so you had a marriage that didn't work out You've got custody issues, you know, all these things and ask a few more questions. And it's like within a matter of minutes, like revealing all these stressors in his life, where his life has not worked out very well. And, um, you know, uh, he needs help. But because that doesn't fit his frame, his identity, his sense of what a person who needs therapy is. He was totally closed off to it. It was outside of his box mm-hmm. because in his mind, a third, a person who needs therapy is some diagnosable, you know, major depressive disorder, psychotic episode, schizophrenia type thing. Not somebody who might be dealing with a lot of stress and dysfunction in his primary relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, going by that, most everybody could use help. Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Most everybody could. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Um, anyway, uh, so how this relates, I think, in a big way to, to pain, physical pain, mm-hmm. and, and the psychological is uh, part of the dialogue needs to be do you want to get better Mm -hmm. do you want to be pain-free do you want this do you want your depression to subside you know yeah um are they interested in finding solutions yes yeah people will say well duh of course but the reality of it is is that every pattern that we have there is some unintended benefit. Mm -hmm. There's what we call secondary gain Mm -hmm. to it. A good example is smoking and 
somebody who wants to quit smoking and they say, you know, I want to quit smoking. And I'm like, okay, but um, what do, what good do you get from from smoking? What do you, what benefit? And they're like, oh, nothing. I hate it. It's horrible. I, I really want to quit smoking. I'm like, yes, but if that were totally true, you wouldn't keep doing it. Right. You know, what do you get from it? And sometimes you have to go down deeper and go to the levels that they're not really consciously thinking about. It's like, why did they start smoking in the first place? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it's a social connection thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made friends. I got to be the bad boy or the bad girl who was defiant against their, their parents when I you know, got that adrenaline rush of sneaking a cigarette you know, behind mm-hmm. the house or behind the school, you know, away from teachers. So, you know, and then without a doubt, people say it relaxes me. Right. But nicotine is a stimulant. So, you know, um, but I, I do believe that there might be that relaxation response from smoking because what do people do when they smoke? They, mm-hmm. they breathe deeply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. for the, that period of time, you know, they're, they're actually relaxing themselves, but they, mm-hmm. they don't take those benefits unintended benefits uh, into consideration when they talk about wanting to quit. But -hmm. it's those things that actually make quitting smoking really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Because if they hated it as much as they said, they, you know, they would. That's right. Like that. That's right. Uh, Lloyd, this is all great, great information. I think it really gives a, a nuance to the conversation that needs to be had underneath the conversation. Like the the issue with pain is just the symptom. You're talking about the conversation below that symptom that can begin to suss out a sustainable and long lasting solution for the person suffering with pain. Yep. What, what um, is your obviously not all therapists are created equal. Can you give us maybe a, a short list of how someone who is looking for this type of support, uh, using NLP, working with a therapist could get a, I guess, vet or interview therapists to know which one would line up with them? Well, all right, of course, the most obvious would be, does the therapist advertise um, that they are dealing with pain issues? You know, do they uh, put that in their biography or, uh, yeah, their their biography of the issues that they're working with? Mm-hmm. Um, do they advertise specifically about NLP? And, you know, a lot of people that do NLP might not really be adept in uh, the techniques that are used for pain, um, but um, they might, they might be. Um, Unfortunately, people try to find therapists strictly through the internet and what they read. There's nothing wrong with calling people, you know, Mm -hmm. calling people and asking questions of either the front office staff, like, does this person deal with this? What's their approach on this? Or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, could I have five minutes to speak with, with the therapist 
about this. I'm interested in coming to see them. You know, that, I think that's, uh, you know, appropriate. Um, I, so I one did, yeah. Those three points are huge. You know, it, does the therapist deal with pain? Does the person advertise that they work with NLP and then asking questions? And mm -hmm. I think what would be super valuable, and if this is something you'd be willing to do um, after we wrap up today is put together a short list, three to five questions maybe, that I could put in the description box below that when they look to, when a person calls to vet out a therapist to, to um, that they would have this short list of questions that they could talk to them. One being, mm -hmm. Is the person even willing to take five minutes to speak with me before I begin paying them to, right. to work with me? Right. Okay. I, I, think, I think that would be great. I did this something similar with a physical therapist uh, that uh, here in, um, in the area, and she went down a short list like that about finding a physical therapist that is local to them to be able to determine who would be awesome to work with. Okay. Because once again, not all therapists are created equal. So cool. Um, I will definitely put that in the description box below, as well as if someone were uh, wanting to reach out to you, um, uh, how, how does that work? How do you work with uh, clients? Obviously you can work with clients over the phone or online. Um, and in a, you said earlier in a contractual relationship outside of the state of Virginia, mm. outside of the state of Virginia, I would ask that people contact me at lloydrobrecht.com. Okay. Uh, we, we're going to put all that in the description below as sure. well as like a link sure. that they could push on to send, uh, contact you directly. Yeah. The email would be lrobrecht at outlook.com. Okay. Okay, got it. But inside the state of Virginia, I would ask people to contact me through the Manassas group, which is the group that I am associated with in my practice. Mm -hmm. And I have a phone number, 540-774-4686. Okay, we'll get all of that in the description below. So awesome. they can call directly. Those inside of Virginia have that information. Those outside of Virginia have that information. So they could reach out to you based on their location yep. and um, have that available to you and to them. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Lloyd, is there anything else you want to that I might not have tied up or you wanted to touch on? I think we need to do this again because, <laughs> because there are so many aspects of actual physical pain that I don't think uh, we uh, touched on. And this maybe, maybe I was looking at it a little differently. I have some uh, descriptions of actual NLP processes Ooh, uh, that people, okay. would, you know, a therapist would use to help a person with, with knee pain or any kind of pain, physical pain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and one, one thing I would like to comment on is I use the, the uh, description of smoking 
-hmm. and you know what are the unintended benefits or the secondary gains of smoking but a person needs to ask themselves the same question about physical pain mm -hmm. how does this pain having this pain being in this state benefit you mm -hmm. what does it what would you have to give up in order to make this pain go away what would you be sacrificing does it garner you sympathy from other people you know to mm -hmm. be in so much pain does it get you time off from work does it allow you to avoid doing or participating in uncomfortable things you know i don't want to have to go there and deal with these people you mm -hmm. know i can use this as a reason not to you know but you know if you ask people do they want to get rid of the pain they're like oh hell yeah absolutely this is horrible mm -hmm. i can't stand it anymore but if you look a little bit deeper, there are benefits to being in pain sometimes, mm -hmm. a lot, so. Yeah, uh, well then let's do that. Let's in the okay. uh, next couple of weeks, uh, All right. we'll, we'll zero in on a little bit more specific topic around that, uh, like a physical process. So we could, we could suss out that, um, the name of that podcast sure. in a few weeks and we can do another one where you can walk me through some pain I'm having. Okay. <laughs> cool. Lloyd, it Thank was fun. Sir. It was awesome having you. Thank you. Appreciate you very much. Appreciate your time. Uh, this is Bill Paravano, the knee pain guru. Thanking you so much for being here on the pain education podcast brought to you by the Camello Foundation. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this week's segment of the Pain Education Corner. Join us next week for another conversation on natural healing methods to eliminate pain. To learn more about the work we do at the Camella Foundation, please visit our website at the Camella C O M E L L A Foundation dot org.